Uh, these last few weeks, there's one word this summer that has powerfully impacted our world in various ways. One word that's been the source of many cheers, tears, jeers, and beers. It's caused whole countries to dance with celebration and joy. It's caused other countries to weep in disappointment. Unfortunately, I believe it's a shame that it's a word celebrated by the world, but most, most Americans don't really care. <laughs> and I've, I've found that out this morning because the word is goal. How many are watching the World Cup? All right, that brings about a total of 20 people who are watching from the three services. Uh, it is, a, if you're into it, it's the, Super Bowl, it's the World Super Bowl for soccer, for European football. Um, just so exciting to watch, just filling stadiums with people. And when there's a goal and the announcer yells that out, the place goes nuts. In fact, the power of this one word is such that the first game that Mexico won, their first goal, that seismographs were registering small earthquakes in, New Me in Mexico City. That's how crazy people are about the World Cup. Well, on Wednesday, we will be celebrating a word that we are crazy about as Americans. We'll celebrate it with picnics and fireworks and marches and parades and speeches it will remind some of battlefields and blood spilt and sacrifices made. It's the word freedom. We celebrate that word. We celebrate what it means, freedom. It was a simple cry, give me liberty or give me death, that became the spark that united the fire of the American Revolution. Words have power. Words have power. Words matter. Words not only convey information, they have the power to motivate, inspire, to discourage, to destroy. In today's passage, James has a lot to say about words, their power, their influence, and how they reflect our faith. This morning, we're in the third chapter of James. If you're not there, you can turn, that, turn there or um, turn to your device to James chapter 3. But we've been looking at a faith that works, because a faith that works makes a difference in our lives and in the lives around us. A faith that works means that our actions, our responses, our attitudes, our words reflect and demonstrate the beliefs that we're committed to. It's a reflection of our theme from Bible camp this week that, that <clears throat> Jesus died for our sins. Live like you, live like you know it. Jesus rose again from the dead. Live like you know it. We're part of God's bigger story. Live like you know it. Faith that works is living like we know the, the God that we've committed our lives to. And so a faith that works will show up in the way we saw the first week, the way we respond to trials. It will show up in the way that we respond to temptation. A faith that works will be demonstrated by our actions, a loving concern for others without favoritism. Our faith will be demonstrated by the way we live in obedience to God. It will show up as a pattern of good works in our lives. And now James says our new life in Christ is going to show up in our words, what we say. And so a living and working faith is demonstrated by life-giving words. 
You see, if you've said yes to Jesus, the Bible tells us we're a new creation with a new heart, which should be reflected in our lives and the way that we talk to one another. The new, regenerated, transformed person in Christ has a new mouth, a new tongue, new speech. As if you remember from the <clears throat> couple weeks ago in chapter 1, verse 26, James said, if you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. And so the tongue becomes sort of this litmus test for the heart. James is wanting us to know that our words matter, so we need to use them wisely. You see, God's gift of language is woven into everything we are. Words were present at the beginning when God spoke the world into existence. He's revealed himself through the written word of God. Jesus is the word made flesh who lived among us. And after this world has passed away, we'll use words throughout eternity to glorify God. You see, God has made us expressive beings. In fact, the average person spends one-fifth of their life talking. So that means if you live till you're about 80, you spend 16 years of your life just talking, verbalizing. Put into print, a single day's words would fill a 50-page book. Less for some, more for others, right? <laughs> but words make us happy. They make us sad. Words, they make us angry or fill us with joy, laugh or cry, heal, or they can hurt. And James is saying, they have power. Use them wisely. I'll never forget being at one of my son's uh, tournament baseball games. And uh, the other team was up the bat. It was the last inning. It was their last chance. There were two outs. They had two on base. They were one run down, and the coach's son got up the bat. About nine years old, bat was almost bigger than him, and he's up there, and you can tell. He's like, this is a big moment. <laughs> and he's getting up there, and, and his, his dad, who is the coach, yells out this to his son. You can do it, son. This is your big moment. You're either a hero or a zero. He struck out. One of the parents around us whispered, I guess he's a zero. Ooh. <laughs> wow. You know, when we talk about words, the power of words, man. <laughs> Have you ever listened to yourself? Have you ever listened to your own words? You know, think about the effect that dad's words has on his son or daughter. Think about the effects in marriage, words make or break a relationship. Words are, are irretrievable. They have the power of a sword, and when you stab with words, sure, you can pull it out, but the wound is still there. Think about the impact of a boss's words to his employees when his words are critical or encouraging. Consider the effect that gossip has on someone's life and, and reputation. Words are powerful because words go where sticks and stones don't get to. They have the ability to weaken our certainty, to, to diminish our thoughts, to erode our confidence. Words matter. They matter in conversations. They matter in, in emails and texts and letters and phone calls and, and social media. 
And so many of the difficulties we see in our families and offices and dorms and churches and nations are because of foolish words. How many murders and suicides and divorces and wars have begun with a careless word? See, we all struggle. We all struggle with words, but our words don't have to be foolish. In fact, the Apostle Paul encourages us to speak what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I think as we think about words, we realize that what we think about ourselves is often the accumulation of things said about us and to us over the years. If you were told as a child, you're stupid, you're not worth anything, you'll never make it, those words can be like toxic chemicals in the soil. And as we grow, we root ourselves in those words, and those words may live with us for a lifetime. Words have influence and power. The Proverbs from which James borrows a lot of his thoughts and ideas contains over 150 references to the tongue, to our mouths, to our words, to our speech. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. Pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, health to the bones. Without, without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. A man finds joy in giving an apt reply. How good is a timely word? Our lives are marked by the negative and positive words that have been said about us and to us and a reflection of what is going on inside us as well. You see, words have the power to heal. They have the power to destroy. That's why James starts out with a pretty strict warning in verse 1. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. In the Jewish culture, the rabbi was this highly esteemed individual. The teacher was esteemed. In fact, if your parents and your teacher were captured by the enemy, the, the teacher was to be ransomed before your parents. And so this respect for the teacher transferred itself to the church and became a position to be wanted and envied. But James brings them back to reality by reminding them yeah, it's not a small or easy task to teach God's word. In fact, there's a, it's an incredible responsibility. There's accountability that goes with it. And I believe James, <clears throat> James is echoing what Jesus had said in Matthew 12, but I tell you that everyone will have to give a t an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they've spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Those are some pretty sobering words. And see, James's warning is for teachers who misrepresent God, who, who twist it, who use it for their own gain, to, to elevate themselves, or, or maybe they don't take it seriously or use it accurately, or they promote themselves, or they, they fail to put the words they're teaching into practice in their own lives. You see, I believe one person like this within the church can do more spiritual and moral and emotional damage to people's lives than a hundred skeptics or atheists outside of the church. 
You see, I, I also think the change in the pronouns is rather telling in this verse. Not many of you should become teachers, my, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. James purposely goes from you to we. He's like, I'm putting myself in this mix. I'm stepping on my own toes. I'm preaching to myself. It's a warning to him as well that we have this tremendous accountability to God when we teach at any level. You see, our words matter whether communicated from the stage or the platform or whether spoken to a first grader and power kids. Our words give direction. What we say matters. What we say when we speak for God matters even more. So our words matter. Use them wisely. Our words have power also to inspire and motivate. I've heard it said that one word can change a life. I believe that because one word, one phrase, one sentence spoken at the right time can change the direction, the course of one's life. I love you. Man, son, I'm so proud of you. Daughter, you're so good at that. You're worth it. You know, when Jennifer said, when we stood in front of the church almost 28 years ago, and she said, I do, it changed the course of my life. Words change our course. And they have the power to motivate and inspire. I remember talking to one of our um, global partners, our missionaries. I said, man, how can we come alongside you? How can we support you? How can we encourage you? And he's like, well, he goes, it's not that hard. (laughs) He said, I have, for example, he says, I have a list of 400 emails people have given to me that said, hey, we're interested in you. We want to know what you're doing. We're praying for you. He says, every month I I send out 400 prayer letters that give an update of what we're doing and how you can pray for us. He said, you know, I I check a week later and 120 of those emails have been opened. He says, and of those 120 that have been opened, there's maybe half a dozen where people have actually said, hey, read your letter praying for you. He's like, you know, it doesn't have to be that complicated. He says, just a simple response. He says, it doesn't take that much to encourage us. Just a simple response. I'm praying for you guys. I'm thinking of you guys. He said, that that means the world to us because it communicates to us we're not alone. There's people who've got our back. They're praying for us. You know, and as as I go away from that conversation, I think, you know, we don't have to create pep talks. We don't have to give halftime speeches to inspire and motivate. Sometimes it's just a simple word of encouragement. You see, James writes, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. And so he gives us these very simple but profound illustrations. A tiny bit controls a massive horse. The the rider pulls this way or that way, and the horse goes that way. He pulls on the reins, and the bit tightens, and and the horse stops. A five-inch bit weighing a few ounces can control a thousand-pound horse. In the same way, the tiny rudder 
controls a mighty ship. And so if the captain turns the wheel one way, the rudder goes that way, the ship goes that way. He turns it the other way, the rudder turns, and the ship goes the other way. It's the difference between ending up in Japan or Portugal. But it guides this mighty ship. Well, the tongue itself, James is saying, is, is a mighty tool. It's a mighty muscle weighing about two to three ounces, about one-tenth of one percent of the average person's weight. Almost everything else in our bodies weighs more than the tongue, and yet it is powerful. Because the tongue has such power to influence every part of life, James is saying, learn to direct it, learn to control it. The problem is, you see, the, the bit and the rudder, they have to overcome opposing forces. The bit, the, the wild nature, the strength of the horse, the rudder, the forces of nature, the wind, the waves, the current. And in the same way, the tongue that inspires and motivates and gives life has to overcome the contrary ways of our self-centeredness. See, Proverbs 18.21 says the tongue has the power of life and death. It has great potential to do good. It has great potential to do tremendous evil. And so not only can it motivate and inspire, our words have power to discourage and destroy. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. And see, fire has a lot of good uses, right? It gives light, it gives warmth. We cook over fire, it, it creates energy and power when it's under control. But what James is saying is just one uncontrolled spark can start a fire that will destroy thousands of acres of forest, can destroy a forest, can destroy a town or a city, a community. You see, James is, is pretty, pretty clear that tongues can be dangerous, a great boaster, a world of evil, a corrupter, a destroyer, set on fire by hell. The wording here suggests that our tongues, our tongues' evil extends beyond ourselves to our whole circle of life. Paul would agree when he wrote in Romans 3, describing the sinfulness of man, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. Four of the five organs that, most, <clears throat> that are the most common means for sin relate to our words. Our throats, our tongues, our lips, our mouths. See, someone has calculated that for every word of Adolf Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, 125 lives were lost in World War II. Jewish rabbis often spoke of the tongue as an arrow because it has the ability to wound and kill from a distance. It can kill without being anywhere near the victim. <clears throat> you know, isn't that true in our, in our, in our social media-saturated world today? Our words, our words have the power to discourage and destroy, to go much further than we ever intended. 
That's why James goes on to explain that our words are poison. Our words can be poisonous. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. He's saying no human being. We can't do it. Only God can. Because it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. So how ironic is it that we can harness the power of a raging river to prevent flooding and produce power? We learn to harness the power of the atom to, for, for destructive and productive ends. We've been able to subdue every kind of creature from, from parrots to killer whales. And yet with all of our success in bringing things under control, we're powerless to control our own tongue. James says it's full of poison. You see, poison has the ability to destroy whether shouted from the streets or whispered in confidence. Poison words always poison people. We don't play with arsenic or cyanide. We don't roll mercury around in our hands anymore. We, we used to as kids. <laughs> Not anymore. And James is saying they're poisonous, so don't don't play with poisonous words. I saw a news segment last week about a family. They moved into an old home. They were excited about their, their, first, their first home, and uh, they were doing some work on it. And They lived there for several months. They noticed their two-year-old still wasn't talking. They noticed their, their other kids, they weren't developing. They weren't growing the way they were supposed to. And, and so they went to the doctor, and it's like, eh, our kids aren't growing and developing the way they should. And, and so he took their blood and their blood samples came back 10 times the amount of lead in their blood than the normal average person, than what should be there. And so this, this, their house was filled with peeling lead paint and it was slowly poisoning their kids. And I think, you know, I think in the same way, poisonous words slow down our spiritual development. You see, our poison words inhibit and put a stop to our becoming more and more and more like Jesus. You see, James doesn't tell us which words are poisonous, but we get an idea by looking a couple chapters ahead in chapter 5. He gives us a hint of of what some of these poisonous words look like in in chapter 5, verse 9, when he says, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. And so the first kind of poisonous words are those unloving words, or when we grumble against one each other, when we complain to each other, when we just kind of roll our eyes at each other, when we're not willing to put the other person before ourselves not willing to seek understanding, we judge, and the result is words without love. He goes on to say later in verse 12, above all my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. And James is taking straight from Jesus' words in Matthew 5 where he says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. In other words, we're always under oath to tell the truth, to keep the truth. We're we're not to make promises that we can't keep. 
And so these lies are poison to us and the people around us and these poisonous words are untruthful words. These lies come in the form of deception or they can come in the form of exaggeration or strategic omission or spin. Whereas they're, they're technically factual, but they're designed to misrepresent the truth. I'm sure there's others, but poisonous words are particularly unloving and untruthful. And so you see, we need to, we need to speak words that are both true and loving. Because a loving word without truth is still just a deception, it's a lie. A truthful word without love is, is harsh. It creates bitterness. It has no concern for wellness of, uh, well-being of the other person. And so when we, speak truth, the, the, when we speak truth, the best way is with kindness and humility and respect. Why is that important? Because we want, to excuse, we want any excuse to believe that the person telling us the truth doesn't like us. Well, he doesn't like me, so I don't need to listen to him. Just consider the source. <laughs> and so that's where humility and love breaks all that down. Because unloving truth isn't really committed to the truth. And so I think uh, something that, that helps me at times, that uh, might help you, is when you're in that conversation as you're in conversations this week, and you're thinking about, ah, should I tell them this or not, or you're in the midst of a story, there's three questions we need to ask. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Is it true? Is it kind? Is it loving? Is it even necessary? And so when I'm talking about, when I, when I go up and I'm talking to someone and I start talking about someone else, I need to ask, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? When I'm sharing information about someone or something, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Say it with me. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? So simple questions, but could have such a huge impact on our conversations, the way we use our words. Because only when our words are truthful and loving at the same time do our words become life-giving. Life-giving to our relationships, our marriages, our families, our communities. Worries, words that carry truth and love become the antidote to the poisonous words. Which leads to where we're going to land this morning, and that is our words must reflect our faith. Our words that must reflect our faith. See, James doesn't tell us what we need to do to control the tongue. <laughs> but I agree with Pastor Tim Keller that, that James indicates some solutions or strategies at the beginning and the end of the passage. And the first is control your tongue, it reveals what's in your heart. Control your tongue, it reveals what's in your heart. And then the second strategy, ultimately what controls your heart controls your tongue. And at first you look at that as like, well, aren't those two competing? Well, they're, they're not. They're, they complement one another. And so I believe one of the things James is saying in verse 2 is, listen to your own words and you'll begin to deal with your heart. 
Listen to yourself. Listen to your own words. Listen to your own speech. And it begins to reveal what's in your heart. See, how we use our tongues reveals our, a level of spiritual maturity. James says, we all stumble. <laughs> in fact, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Well, here perfect doesn't, doesn't mean sinlessly perfect, but rather this idea of maturity. You see, we can never achieve sinless perfection in this life, but we can grow in spiritual maturity. And so one important gauge of that maturity is, is our speech, the, the things that we say. And James is saying only, only spiritually mature people are able to control their tongue. And with God's help and with a heavy reliance on the Holy Spirit, if we can control their, our tongue, then we can start to deal with the heart. And see, our words reveal whether our faith is, genuine, is a genuine faith that works. Our words either validate that we're true followers of Jesus or we're not. Genuine followers of Jesus have the sense of being accountable for their speech, the words that they say. But here's what, I wanna, here's what I would like us to do. I'd like you to take a tongue test this week. A tongue test. <laughs> for one whole day, just do a tongue assessment. Listen to your own words. Not only the words that you're speaking to others, but what are the words that you're speaking to yourself internally? Pay attention to where you may be prone to boast about or defend yourself. Pay attention to, to gossip or, or the times when you're tempted to speak negatively about others. You see, because when we start to watch our words, when we start to notice and pay attention to our words, and we pay attention to these unspoken words that we say to ourselves, oftentimes we start to see patterns. Those patterns of, of pride and defensiveness and self-righteousness and, and untruthfulness and unlovingness. You see, when we spend a, a lot of time defending ourselves or, or even trying to promote ourselves a little bit, we're not going to be completely truthful. But when we start, and when we start talking about others, we're probably not always going to be loving. So here's what I think James is saying about keeping our words in check. When you start to realize what you say, only then will you begin to expose what's really in here, what's really in your heart, what's really in your soul. And only when you expose your heart can you begin to deal with the heart, get a grip on your mouth, and you begin to uncover what's deep in the heart, what's deep in your soul, what's deep in your belief. And that's when the real work begins. Listen to your words. Someone has said you know a lot about a person by, by listening to what spills out when they're bumped. <laughs> How true is that? We're, we're fine until somebody bumps into us or somebody ticks us off and then, whew, all that comes up out of our mouth. I remember playing basketball, and it's like, whoa, I thought he was a really nice guy, and whoa, wow. You start to see all the stuff that's in here, it comes out of the mouth. Because the mouth is a tattletale of the heart. And so fixing what's deep inside of us begins by turning over 
control of our heart to God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. You see, when you do that, the pride and anger and and self-centeredness and fear and bitterness and all the poisons of your heart will be replaced by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. So pay attention to the words that get you into trouble and you'll be able to identify and deal with the sin that's at the heart of the matter. The work of taming the tongue takes us to our hearts because what's in the well comes out in the water. What's in the tree comes out in the fruit. This bring, and this brings us to our second and ultimate strategy. Deal with your heart by filling it with good things. It starts with the heart. And so we fill it with God's truth and God's love. And we, we listen to James as he tells us with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. And then he he takes a strong position here. He says, my brothers and sisters, this shouldn't be. (laughs) It shouldn't be this way, he says. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And so with the same mouth, we bless and we curse, we love and we hate, we serve and we steal, we proclaim Christ and then we lie to our friends, we forgive and then we lose our temper 10 minutes later, we worship and then we talk poorly about others. What James is talking about is the connection between our words and our hearts. We need consistency. We can fake it for a while because... (laughs) We all know when to say the right thing at the right time to make the right impression. We all know how to be religious around religious people, spiritual around spiritual people. But you see, sooner or later you get bumped and the truth about the heart shows up on our lips. You see, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And what James says here is a reflection of what Jesus taught in Luke when he said a good, fruit, a good tree can't produce bad fruit, a bad tree can't produce good fruit. In fact, a tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes. Grapes aren't picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. An evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what's in your heart. You see, you don't get orange juice out of a milk carton. You don't pump lemonade out of a gas pump. If you plant spinach, you don't get watermelons. Whatever is in you will be poured out. Whatever is in your heart will be revealed by your words. If if you're angry, you're going to speak angry words. If there's a lot of bitterness going on down in here, when you get bumped, you're going to have some bitter words. But if you're filled with God's spirit, if you're filled with God's love, with God's truth, then those words come out with kindness. Again, someone has said the tongue is simply the messenger that delivers the mail composed by the heart. You see, if your reputation is what means the most to you, if that's what at the core of who you are, when someone criticizes you, man, you're going to cut into them right away. 
And you're going to speak unloving words. If your need for approval and the want for people to like you is the core of who you are, you're not going to say some things that need to be said, and you're not always going to be truthful. If money or status or power are in your heart, you're going to be spinning the truth, exaggerating to inflate what people think about you. You're going to be leaving out the truth. We remember what... uh, What James told us in verse 6, the tongue corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. If the heart is filled with hatred and bitterness and anger, hell will light the fire. It will be empowered by evil. But if the heart is filled with the things of the Spirit of God, God will light the fire. I think it's interesting, I love that <clears throat> Tim Keller points out there's, there's two kinds of fire, a fire from hell, and there's also a fire from heaven. If we go to Acts chapter 2, in the beginning of the church, we see that Jesus has told his disciples, go, make disciples of all nations, go, spread the word about Jesus, but wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. And so they're waiting, and Jesus ascends into heaven, and and they're waiting in Jerusalem, waiting, praying. And in the description of the beginning of the church in Acts 2, what seemed to be fire that came from heaven came and rested on the followers of Jesus. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in all the various languages of the people in the city that were gathered there. Words in the people's own language that pointed people to Jesus and what he had done for them. They were words of life. You see, the words empowered by heaven are words of life. This is the opposite of what happened in Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel when when all the people got together. I, I think it's fascinating. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. What did they do with this incredible ability, this incredible opportunity? It says, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. And then here's where their heart is exposed so that we may make a name for ourselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves, create their own glory apart from God. They wanted to build a community founded on their own pride, their own power, their own glory, their own reputation, and their words became empowered by evil. And so God confused their speech. Their words were poison because what fills your heart affects your mouth. Their words were bad. And so what happened in Acts 2 is a reversal of the curse of Babel. And when the people saw the beauty of what Jesus had done for for them, their hearts were filled with praise and it healed their speech. You see, their hearts were filled with praise for what God had done in Jesus at the cross. Jesus brought truth and love together at the cross. He died because of truth and love, truth that God's wrath, his justice, his holiness was fully satisfied. He brought together love in that he took our place, he took our sin, he fully paid our sin debt so that in his mercy and in his grace and in his love we might have a relationship with him now and forever. Jesus on the cross is the ultimate demonstration of truth and love at once. 
as we close here to ask the band, band to come out. But I think there's some things that, that we need to talk about. It can be pretty sobering, the words that, that sometimes come our way. When I was a pastor at another church, I came out one Sunday, I was one of the last to leave, and I went out to my car, and there's a piece of paper on the windshield. So I grabbed it, thought it was an advertisement, kind of put it in my car, and on the way home, I was like, oh, I wonder what that piece of paper said. And I looked at that piece of paper, it said one word, fool. <laughs> there's another time I, I received a letter, apparently it was from God, it was signed by God. <laughs> yeah, he even signed it. <laughs> and it just outlined everything I was doing wrong. You're not doing this and this and this and this, and it was signed by God. <laughs> I, I thought for sure that the postmark would be West Virginia, you know, almost heaven, West Virginia. <laughs> and sometimes I would come in on a Sunday morning and I'd get a message on my phone and someone had left a message at 2 a.m. telling me in, in our church how stupid and, and foolish we are. You see, I, that's not new, is it? We've all been yelled at and, and told various truths and harmful things. And the thing is, even when we choose to ignore these things, their poison can still seep into our hearts. And if we let that poison sit there, it just festers and, and grows. And it infects the heart and our words become a reflection of the lies and the hurts and the insecurities that lie within us. See, many of us, we've become the accumulation of things said to us about us. Things we've heard that have, have become, we've allowed it to control our lives. And as a child, you may have heard, you're not good enough, smart enough. You are, you're not going to amount to anything. You're not going to do anything. You're a zero because you struck out in a big game. Maybe choosing teams, you were that person that people, the team pointed to and said, oh, we don't want him. We don't want her. As a teenager, you may have heard, you'll never make it. You're not worth it. You're, you're never going to succeed or go anywhere in life. You don't have what it takes. Or even as an adult, you've heard, you're a loser. We don't want you. We don't need you. You're a fool. You can't cut it. And all of these things said without love and truth can easily become a part of the way that we think about ourselves and others. They become a part of who we are and, and what we believe about ourselves. And in turn, this influences the words that come from the heart. Here's where the, here's where the healing begins. Because of Jesus, you're no longer a slave to these thoughts and words. When you say yes to Jesus and you're living for him, you're no longer what you once were. You're, no you're not what others have said you are because you're covered in the righteousness and the perfection of Jesus himself. And so when you come before God, the Father, you come as his child, adopted into his family, loved, accepted, purchased by Jesus by, who brought love and truth together at the cross.
And so we need to realize and hide these truths in our lives. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but you are God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. When your heart is filled with the beauty of what God has done for you, words are healed and the heart is filled with his truth and his love. You see, we're no longer identified by the lies and words that come from the pit of hell. We're identified by the words that come from heaven, the Father himself calling me his child. You see, when we find, when this truth gets to the center, the core of who we are, it doesn't matter what anyone else has said. It doesn't matter what your mom said at that one time. It doesn't matter what your dad said. It doesn't matter what your coach or your teacher or that friend said. All that matters is you are a child of God. And as a child of God, your words are changed and transformed into life-giving songs filled with what is true and right and noble and lovely and admirable and pure and excellent and praiseworthy. You see, our words are a reflection of our faith. A faith focused and a heart filled with God's truth and God's love. Let's pray. Father, thank you. I thank you for Jesus who gives us life, who gives us a relationship with you. Lord, how humbling and amazing it is to be called your child, to belong to you. Father, fill my heart, fill our hearts with your love, with your truth. Lord, help us to, to learn to discard the lies we continually tell ourselves or, or others pour into our lives and focus on you. That out of a heart that's filled with your love and a heart filled with your grace and your truth, Lord, our words speak life to the people around us. Our words heal, our words uplift, our words encourage, our words inspire and motivate. Father, help us to settle that in our hearts, that we are your child, that we might live that way, that we might live what we know to be true in Jesus. Lord, protect our lips, protect our hearts. Love you too.